Miracy. Are we really fulfilling the mission as best we can and trying to create a culture around change that isn't one that sees change as a condemnation of what has come before, but as a natural iteration and evolution and a set of innovations that everyone can feel proud of, that they were part of bringing in effect generationally. I'm Sharon Richmond and this is To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional power they get comes with an equal measure of personal responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is John Abbott. John's leadership journey started back at least 25 years ago, I think longer actually, when he took an executive position with PBS in Washington, D.C., and culminated as president and CEO of the Boston PBS affiliate WGBH until he stepped down at the end of 2022. He continues to serve as special advisor to the organization. During John's 15 years as CEO, he oversaw the development of new channels, expanded the station's presence over digital platforms, and rebranded the organization as simply GBH to better reflect its broad scope. John was also instrumental in helping GBH raise $215 million in the largest capital campaign by a public media outlet and increasing its endowment more than eightfold to nearly $525 million. John began his media career as an undergrad at Columbia University and ultimately earned his MBA from Stanford where we were classmates. And that was now, I'm going to say the number, 35 years ago. So I know for a fact that uh, that you started your career that long ago with the project you did at KQED, and uh, I think it was a pretty amazing project, if I remember right, so we'll talk about that in a sec. Welcome to the show, John. I'm so looking forward to talking with you about your career and the significant impact your organizations have had on public television and radio under your leadership. Thanks, Sharon. Oh, it's great to be with you, and yeah, particularly in the context of these topics and the way in which you talk to leaders and about organizational health and mission and purpose. I'm grateful to be with you. Thank you so much. So let's start a little bit with the story of KQED and the project you did there, because if I remember right, it was pretty groundbreaking. It was a very special time. And as you you remember, most of our classmates were understandably focused on careers that were going to lead them to great success in across a range of for-profit industries and including, you know, banking, finance, Silicon Valley, consulting. I was one of, along with a group of us, just like us in a small cadre of fish out of water. And I had come to Stanford having been bitten by the public media bug in my college radio station at Columbia, where I, you know, kind of lived half my time. 
and where I fell in love with this thing called public media, uh, which had an extraordinary approach to connecting communities and audiences with work that otherwise commercial markets wouldn't support. So I came to Stanford said, saying, I want to do this public media thing, which sort of meant that that summer between first and second year, um, everybody else had lots of interviews they could do. And I had kind of one I needed to do. <laughs> uh, and I got lucky. The president of KQED, which is the wonderful flagship public media organization in San Francisco, came to speak on campus. I, and I was maybe to five people. I was one of them. And I said, gee, might you have something I could do with you? And uh, uh, he was kind enough to invite me up. And basically, with his direction and that of many of the executive team, they were looking at a strategy to create the first all-news public radio station in America. When I was 25, and I still think it was probably the best summer project of any, any of our classmates because it was just so much fun. And I came out with, the, you know, I kind of wrote the strategy and the business plan and the rationale. And it was, uh, you know, complete immersion. And the board, before the end of the summer, voted that they would make the change. And then I was lucky enough, our second year at, in grad school, I... Took all my classes in the morning and in the afternoons, I jumped, ran to the parking lot, drove up to San Francisco and worked at the station and did thereafter graduation just to see this format that then became kind of this, the most successful format for public radio uh, flourish. Yeah, it's amazing. And the station continues to be core to, I mean, so much of the Bay Area. So how did you go from this like student-y project to getting into the leadership of these public media organizations? Well, that's a great question. I had done this thing between college and graduate school, but honestly, putting on a suit and tie and going to work every day and sitting in a cubicle, I just couldn't imagine that being my my cadence and my, my setting. So it helped me refresh the sense of, and begin to understand what it was I was looking for in a workplace. So it was the good fortune of happening upon, you know, maybe um, not an organization that was in, you know, kind of equilibrium, but more in about to disrupt something and take a big bet. You know, so I think in general, being connected to work that others could get excited about uh, makes it very personally fulfilling, but also creates an environment where you can pull a team together and get people really excited about their work and their work alongside others. That's great. And I think what we want to talk a little bit about today is the the arc of your leadership journey and maybe your philosophy today about leadership and kind of how it evolved over time. So maybe just reflect a little bit on how you started out thinking about being a leader and, and where you went over the, the decades as you rose ever higher in ever larger organizations. Well, I was back at the beginning, you know, 25 years old, trying to do this project that many of the folks in the organization, while they had socialized the project with people, a lot of people didn't understand, what's this kid doing? You know, the kid, as they called me. But I think maybe the thing that I've held on to from that window of time, I remember being there that summer and kind of being the, the person who was doing this peculiar thing and what's he going to accomplish and being social with people in the workplace at KQED. But I remember halfway through the work how incredibly fulfilling it was to have one of the executives who was sponsoring the project come by and say, hey, I read that draft you did. It was intriguing and um, I'd love to talk to you more about it or great work. So I think the when you talk about the 
origin point of a leadership journey. For me, it was, and I still remember this, never forgetting what it was like to be in that position as a younger person, giving his all and hoping it was resonating and then getting feedback and having somebody notice and be seen. So for me, that early remembering what it was like to be someone young and contributing, I think that always has informed the way I've thought about teams. That's great. What were some of the next iterations, other moments you recall along the way that stuck with you? Well, I think there was so much change going on. The challenge in the in the earlier parts of my career was really centering on the mission and goals of the work in the public media space and trying to both balance the thinking about the annual operating work with the kind of larger strategic arc where we're going, both because to survive and to continue to be a part of the you know, media terrain in the in this country and communities across the country. You know, public media is the last locally owned, operated, and governed media in America. And so there was a kind of imperative that said, you have to both nail and execute the plan for today and tomorrow and next year, but you also better be looking around the corner because media is changing so much. So a lot of people that I work with ask me, how do I find the time for the strategic work? Because I have so many operating responsibilities. And that does prove to be kind of a dilemma. Do you have a, a lesson learned or a tip from that? Oh, that's a great question. I think in part, it's there's a little bit of what each of us brings to that chemistry, right? The balance of the how much joy there is in thinking strategically versus operating. And, you know, each of us has our own quirks and our own recipe about addressing life, right? So some of it... I think comes with who's around you. How do you compliment the team members that are around you, the people that are on your team or the people that are leading you? The other thing I would say about that is very often people think of the operating time and the strategy time as separate. I actually think that there's also a thing about team chemistry and about career development that's important there is if you're the, if you're the senior lead on a team and you think it's only you who's thinking strategy, you're missing the juice, you're missing the energy. And so I think in leading a team, contextualizing the why and thinking about, we're doing this today, what do you think it'll look like next year? What do you think it'll look like in two years? What do you see? It does two things. It invites the team member to kind of make sure they're striking the right balance and thinking strategically with you. So you've got great leverage there, but it also kind of tunes them if, you, if things are working well to be really attentive to what they see on the horizon. And if they see opportunities or threats or uncertainty, you, you know, just it's the wisdom of crowds. And you get younger members of the team, hopefully more inspired and excited in their work. That is great. So that kind of takes through the next journey as you continued to rise. How did the journey shift for you personally? And what other kind of key milestones might you identify from that journey? Well, one of the things that was important in my career was I was working at KQED, and of course, there are 150 public media outlets across the country. And it was incredible to me when to think about, we were trying to solve for uh, the future of fundraising and the, a CRM system, a customer relationship management system. And I quickly realized, and this was a kind of exciting thing for me in the social enterprise sector, is that scale 
and the opportunity of solving things with people so that you could imagine having enough resource and enough time to do it well in a sustainable way that had a wider impact than just solving it on your lily pad, right? So we were working on the CRM system and I connected with the people at PBS and you know, I just realized there were too many single points of failure if one station did this alone, but if groups of stations, if we all worked on it together and cared for it, we could create a kind of scale and scope that could be sustainable. So I love being in San Francisco, love being at KQD, but I left to go to PBS largely because they had done a strategic exercise themselves and said, we've got to build the whole set of things that every station across the country can leverage and put into its playbook. And so I went to PBS and, you know, one of, probably the signature project we worked on, we, we, we um, negotiated with Oracle and built, um, we built a software company and built a relational database for fundraising and constituent management that then became actually the largest, we ended up, we built it for the entire public media system, licensed it to the system, to the stations around the country to create a community of users. And then we licensed the software to a partner who was working in the social enterprise sector. This was kind of the most exciting kind of added benefit. And the, the software became outside of hospitals and universities, it became the most successful uh, large scale database uh, resource for nonprofits in the country. Yeah, that's exciting. So you, you went then from PBS to GBH, WGBH at the time, and a couple of key insights from that long journey. I know it will be hard to summarize, but just a couple things maybe that you can recall learning along the way, maybe a story or two. Honestly, it's more of a personal thing. I was working with stations all around the country at PBS. My children were born and I dropped my oldest off at kindergarten and immediately drove to the airport. And I was on that drive like the sixth time. And I said, I don't want to be a dad this way and be on the road all the time. So uh, but at the same time, what I missed was what I had felt about public media, which is the strongest aspect, in my opinion, of the public media system is our fact that we are locally owned, operated, and governed. And that public media is always in a process of evolving and becoming and thinking about how media is used for this public purpose. And that's best done through conversations and connection and engagement with stakeholders in the community. So I missed, I missed that working nationally and colleagues in, at GBH who I'd done a lot of work with, they were the kind of most accomplished station in the country. They were going through the digital transition. I had been with them on an exercise of what does the future hold for digital? How do we make the most of it? You know, the commercial broadcasters will do one thing, we'll do another. So um, they recruited me there to be the general manager to, to imagine what the digital transition should be. And it was exciting because it, I, I was able to still, we imagined it for GBH, but together with the station in New York, WNET, uh, we went to the 10 largest stations the two of us in Boston and New York and mapped this future of, you know, if we all run off in a different direction, we're not going to really accomplish nearly as much as if we agreed generally to the, you know, what game we wanted to play. So we basically, uh, uh, Paula Kerger, who's the current president of PBS, was in New York at the time. And she and I presented this plan for what became the suite of digital channels that public television uses today. I think one of the things that's been true of this journey is remembering the things that 
you love and remember the things that resonate for you. So here I was at GBH in Boston, getting it done for Boston, but I still could keep a bit of that flavor about of system leadership and building. I kept one foot in the we, like what are we doing across the country to move together and to be a community? And then my new foot was in really diving in and getting to know Boston. Very exciting. So as general manager, was there a particular kind of challenge that was a little different than the COO challenge and then the CEO challenge? GBH is the largest producer for PBS. So they're kind of two parts of the company. One is being a big content producer and the other is being of service to Boston. And so um, my greatest memory there was taking everybody through the strategy of what we were going to do, what we could imagine for these digital services, and then the related work that we do in the community in terms of content and engagement alongside them. And so I walked through basically all parts of the organization, not just the editorial teams, but a lot of creative organizations, we, they culture, where the creatives are king and queen, right? And everybody else works for them in a way, right? And that I find with so many of the issues we're all facing, whether it's finance, development, uh, IT, digital, design, everybody supporting that team should feel like they're at the table with the creatives. So I think two things. One was working on a culture that was very much about we and that the best work was going to happen if you invited your folks in functional leadership to the table in the first inning, not the eighth inning. I heard time and again, if we only were at the table early, we could all be part of designing a solution that ultimately when when it came to our turn to execute, we were ready. And the other thing that I took away from all those conversations by like the third or fourth one, there was one phrase that everybody used in it. I mean, it's true of for-profits and nonprofits, but definitely true in nonprofits where you deal with this kind of scarcity mentality very often, right? And challenge of access to capital and resources. Everyone used the phrase, well, if only we could, as if these were barriers that were totally insurmountable. So we then changed the strategic exercise to, and the conversation to an if only conversation. And so one of the things we built was, I want you to think about everything you imagine we could do but if only. And so we then rebuilt the exercise around everybody thinking about the obstacles that were, you know, keeping them and us from succeeding. And it very often, you know, it was about teamwork or it was about access to this, or if this process was different and improved. And it had, it basically illustrated, it was a little bit of a map of the organization in terms of communications, culture, things of the sort. And then all of a sudden you had a team around the table saying, oh, oh my gosh, eight out of the te- those 10 things we might be able to solve. So that notion of getting people to the table and realizing that a lot of what holds people back are the sense that things won't change or couldn't change and, and creating a forum for people to be able to talk about the possibilities, if only. I love that. Yeah, that's really exciting. And then what changed when you moved into the COO role? It was this worrying about the scope of the whole place. And so it was a wonderful challenge to then be working with and responsible for driving the whole of the organization around both the content creation and the studio parts with the media delivery and local parts. So what changed was recognizing that the stakeholders I had within the organization 
were going to be wider and broader and that there were wholly new relationships I needed to strike. So what I tried to do was transpose the things I'd learned about the organization from being general manager onto, okay, what's true still when I become chief operating officer? And, and yet what relationships need more of my time because they're new relationships. That's great. So I'm wondering, could you share one or two of those toughest challenges that you faced as a leader, like during these higher level times that in retrospect, you're like, oh, those were pivotal, but boy, at the time. Yeah. We were facing a time of extraordinary change with digital and all of these new platforms and all of our agreements and uh, contracts and rights agreements were, were tooled for a set of platforms that we knew well, right? But I had a really talented group of colleagues in the, on the legal department who had lived through a lot of change, but they just, they needed a window onto what we were going to need going forward for streaming, for example, and on-demand access, things of the sort. So one of the things that I experienced was if I didn't get um, those colleagues to the table early, everyone on the creative side could imagine the world they wanted, but if they hadn't really spent a lot of time with the business development and legal teams and the tech teams, they weren't going to think about what needs to be different to get us there. So they need to come in when the clay is wet. You got to make sure that the clay is still wet when you invite somebody to the table. And candor, <laughs> you know, one of the places that I learned that early, I, I wasn't unexpected because I'd spent most of my career fundraising. I was used to environments in the nonprofit world where, you know, the program folks in effect say, this is what I need. And so just tell me when you've got it for me instead of how am I going to help you get there? And how does my narrative and case uh, help you with something compelling so I can help you be successful? So I had two breakfasts with executive producers who will remain nameless, but who basically said to me, all right, everything's screwed up in corporate sponsorship or everything's screwed up in development and major gifts. And what are you going to do about it? Those people are terrible. They're incompetent. And I said, and I'm sitting there, let them, you know, I let them vent. And I said, so how much of this have you shared? And have you had a conversation about what they're facing and how you could work together. Because I see, and I was very clear with them after they vented to me. I said, well, the vision, the future we imagine together is that we are all working together. And I promise you, we'll set a high bar for everybody. And if somebody's not getting it done, they're not getting it done. But what I need to know first is that we've had a conversation about what everyone's expectations are. And then I looked the two producers in the eye and I said, and it's a two-way street. This is not what we tell a fundraiser they have to do for us. This is what we are doing together. Because we were not going to attract great development people and have a very stable development office, which is, it's a real challenge in nonprofits because if you have development turnover, if you have great people, turnover can just crush you because you're really dealing with relationships. So I, you know, looking at that head on and looking at exec, you know, the, the all powerful executive producer and saying, I think we can get further for you, but we probably need a little bit of a kind of attitude readjustment. Yeah, that must have been a bit challenging, kind of going in the face of the of the trend of the industry. Well, it was also, once I said that, I knew I'd put my neck out a little bit. And so it wasn't that, in fairness to the development team, it was going to be given an opportunity to show their stuff and to illustrate where they could, where their insight and wisdom could add value to, you know, creating more momentum on the creative side, right? 
So I realized, you know, frankly, once you start something like that, you got to stick with it. I'm not going to just put the two of you in a room and assume you're going to work it out. I think some of it is the kind of stick to of if you're asking other people to go on a journey, you got to wrestle with how much of yourself you're committing to that journey as well. That's great. You've actually presided over quite a number of large changes across these organizations. So in a way, I'm not even sure I would have thought of this before our conversation, but really you've been a change leader pretty much your whole career. And I know there are people out there thinking, how can I get the people in my organization to go along with this change that I think is so right? Well, I think that the challenge of the work is in a mission-centered organization, there's the risk of getting a little focus that the solutions of today and the work of today is the mission, is the ultimate expression of the work and output of the organization. And I think the opportunity about change is, you know, can we be more? Are we really fulfilling the mission as best we can? And trying to create a culture around change that isn't one that sees change as a condemnation of what has come before, but as a natural iteration and evolution and a set of innovations that everyone can feel proud of and having people see the evolution of the work and how it's done. We had our own version of that, right? And we were radio and we were television. And then we realized, well, well, that worked when everyone was just listening to radios and watching television. Now it's audio and it's video and it's all these platforms. And, and, and people at first were very, you know, it was very uncomfortable for people. And then, wow, this asynchronous delivery environment with on-demand platforms. Wow, all that wonderful work you did for that television program at 7 o'clock. We have three times the audience we once did. I mean, I can tell you an example we use pretty regularly to talk about change is that we, public television, PBS, we produce Frontline at GBH. Frontline has more viewers on YouTube than it has on television now. So we use that as an illustration to the entire team that says, well, you know, everybody uses different platforms. So now what we have to do is tool ourselves for all those platforms. And that's not just like more work. What that is, is the chance to double, triple, or quadruple your audience. And very often in our world, those platforms are used by younger people. So it's also a case we're making that says, it's not just having greater reach for the work, but it's basically connecting that work with a new generation of citizens. Yeah, that's very powerful. So I guess a recap of that might be pay attention to maybe they're not quick wins, but stories that will resonate. So it helps expand what people think is possible. It's funny. It's the old thing about telling a story. It's like when you think you've told it nine times, you know, keep telling it. There were a few of those that were kind of what I call bellwether stories. And, and the challenge is if you're really also working on that cross-functional teamwork, you're going to be in different rooms, in different meetings with different teams. So actually creating through those bellwether stories a common narrative so that everyone knows this bellwether stories are they're an important part of creating a kind of currency for change. And one of the biggest challenges for folks during times of change especially from leaders, is they tend to hear any kind of concern or worry or complaint as interruptive and problematic. A word of wisdom, I used to talk about it as embracing resistance. We just have to embrace what you call resistance. But did you find the same? Or how did you handle it? 
I think there are two characteristics to that resistance that present fruitful opportunity, two aspects of it. One is, what am I really hearing from the person? And is it illustrative of something culturally or just in something in terms of team dynamic and communications that we're not doing well in terms of exploring a question? And then the second thing that you get from that is, right, if to something we've already talked about, if you've really involved the team and everybody's looking at a change strategically, and you believe that you've got so much opportunity when you've got eight team members or 11 team members or seven team members, and they're all looking at it. If somebody's bringing you resistance, in addition to the kind of like what's understood in terms of operational and executional, is there something I'm missing? You know, is there some wisdom there because that person is either closer to the customer or closer to a piece of this process that others aren't? And they're putting up a warning signal. It's the kind of sister issue to this notion of when the clay is wet. Right. Okay. So now you're in the kiln and you're making it. Okay. And somebody comes and goes, I think you're right, Sharon. Don't, it's important not to think of that as an obstacle along the way, but maybe the opportunity to examine whether what we've chosen to do and how we've chosen to do it is going to be successful. Yeah. I love to, in those moments, ask the question, what worries do you have about us proceeding in this way? Because people will tell you things that you just can't possibly know. Well, you also put your finger on something that, you know, I, I should have said earlier, but you said it so well. Um, you know, it's some of the basic stuff I've told my daughters who are now, you know, out in the work world. You know, um, what's that old adage? If you're, if you're talking, you're not listening, right? And I think as a leader, they're striking the right balance of declaring and inquiring is really important. And inquiring, to your point, is so powerful. It's powerful both because there's always something to glean and to learn and to invite a perspective to the table. It's also empowering because if you try to build a culture within the organization, illustrating as a leader that you have questions shows that you're constantly curious and inviting of other points of input that you don't have all the answers, but also it's really empowering to somebody to really feel like he or she really wants to hear what I can contribute to the team. So what I say to my daughters is, you know, be careful how much declaring you do versus how much inquiring you're doing. I probably talk about the balance of asking versus declaring with every senior executive I've ever worked with. The ones that already get it, they even they uh, who ask a lot of questions tend to make more statements than ask questions. And so it's fruitful always to kind of check yourself. Well, and particularly if you're declaring a lot because you're using case examples and you're creating a narrative because you're trying to make sure that you're covering all your bases across the organization. Yeah. So the title of this podcast is To Lead as Human. And I love to ask guests, what does this mean to you as a leader when you think about that phrase? Um, so when I was born, my dad was 55 years old. And he was a big figure in my life and came up, he was a tenant farmer in Missouri. And I grew up with a narrative around, you know, struggle and what it took to, you know, first in his family to get to college. And there was, it was a narrative around gratitude and, um, and, and a lot about humility, you know, just humility, frankly. And I just watched him all his life be on a, a journey of learning and curiosity and, you know, he lived to 90 and I just never thought he, I just never, I admired so much that he never forgot 
that he was given a chance to be in different places in the world to move to New York. And, you know, for him, that was always, it was always exciting. There was always a canvas there. Right. So to me, the, the part of that also I connected to, you know, there's a reason why they call it the golden rule. And what I learned from my dad, when I watched him deal, he rose to be the CFO at a college and he was a workaholic. So work seven days a week. And I just followed him around. If I wanted to be with my dad on the weekends, I just was with him, whether it was on a, they were constructing a building, a dormitory, or, you know, I just would, you know, just wanted to be at his knee. Right. But I learned from watching him, how he treated other people. And when you say to lead as human, to me, the golden rule, treating others and remembering what it's like to be treated well and respectfully and thoughtfully and caringly. And when it's not, I I know it sounds really, really basic, but trying even in in those toughest moments to, to imagine being in that other seat, because if, you know, we're asking that much of everybody, you know, creating an environment where we're thinking about treating other people the way we'd like to be treated. And to me, the golden rule is still, it's still a pretty good one to keep an eye on. So this is a tricky one. What's been the hardest personal truth that you've had to face as a leader? I think not acting when, when I've worked with folks who are not leading and managing and participating in a values-driven way and are being inconsiderate, abusive, or manipulative. So acting quickly enough when you see it and you know, you always struggle with, can I coach that? Can I coach that up? Is that really what I'm seeing? And then as you rise up in an organization, there's a lot you don't see. And invariably with power politics and positional authority, the challenge of keeping your ears open and eyes wide open enough to recognize when something's awry. And then the real pain is if you realize after the fact that you didn't act quickly enough and that uh, there was a lot that people struggled with while you were waking up. Yeah, I I think this is the hardest thing for the leaders that I've talked to, not just on the podcast, but in general, is recognizing that we're we're fallible. We we do everything we can to see everything, to hear everything, but we cannot do it by ourselves. And so a piece that I like about to lead as human is we're human beings in a social construct. We need each other to see everything and hear everything so we can make really good decisions. We probably all have a story of, you know, or two or three, sadly, of, you know, just when that happened. And I would say that for me, knowing of those stories and, and that part of the journey, it, those are the places where I just still kick myself. You know, just I realized that there was work left undone. And you're, you're right about um, fallibility, about humility, and about just staying open and realizing we are, you are absolutely right. Gosh, we all need help. In the aftermath of those moments, it, you know, it's the important thing is to hopefully try to take a lesson from it so that, it, you know, will I be better the next time? But it's hard not to, not to hold on to that stuff and with great regret. So I think that's the perfect segue to wrap up today, John. So what's the one piece of advice that you would offer to listeners who want to be more successful executives and, and build these kind of communities and workplaces that embrace the full humanity of the people that are working there? I recognized early on that I wanted to be around creative people. And while I started as one of those creatives and was producing, 
I made this really interesting gambit that I said, you know what I really love in addition to being a creative, what's really a joy is the, you know, being constantly around creative work and creative people. So that just spoke to my heart and just spoke to, you know, it just, it's where I felt fulfilled, felt energy. And so I just would say to, you know, folks, find that part of you that feels fulfilled in both what you do and how you do it and with whom you do it and see if that allows you to map putting yourself in a position so that it just doesn't feel like work. And for me, it's nice to work at making an environment where creatives could feel really good about their work and feel support. That was very fulfilling for me. It just, it felt like I was always filling my cup because I, I realized that, that was something that I found joyful. I found my joy that way. I don't think we could emphasize that enough if we said it 20 times to people and wrote it, you know, and flew it behind planes and posted it over, you know, football stadiums or something. I think of it as feed your soul. And boy, I feel so lucky also just that the work I get to do is this kind of work. With people like you, it's just really so deeply satisfying to be part of the journey it's interesting when, when we talked about scale and the ability to see some progress one place and what was so empowering about seeing it multiple places in a way that's, I'm, I would imagine what you're feeling. My sense is you find in the change and innovation journey and in leading it multiple times, there was probably this kind of pattern recognition thing for you where you realized, well, I definitely feel that there's some wisdom and tenets here and could my contribution be making sure that that was spread? Yeah, it's completely true. Um, so that you have you have your own version of scaling things with something that filled that filled your cup. Yeah, it does. And this today fills my cup too, and I really appreciate it. So a big thanks to you, John, for coming today and having this great conversation. I imagine listeners may want to know where they can find out more about you. So where should they go? LinkedIn is the place where I keep an eye on, keep connected to people whose work I admire and love and I keep learning. For me, that, you know, that platform is a good one. And, you know, I, I hope to continue to meet new people and who knows what the next chapter holds. I know. It's very exciting. Well, thanks so much, John, for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Sharon. Please stay with us for a moment and I'll share some takeaways and coaching tips to help you uplevel your own leadership. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So John's stories perfectly illustrate a leadership framework that I created 15 years ago. He doesn't know this. So I have to tell him now, but I have since shared it with many clients, a few of whom actually called it the world's simplest leadership model. I like it because I'm a fan of simple. And if it's easy to remember, you can use it. 
So let me tell you the model very briefly, but then let me point out John's examples. So the way it goes is leaders have to do three things well, and they have to balance their attention among all three of these things. They have to clarify direction, they have to engage others, and they have to enable brilliant execution. That's the job of the leader. The leader is creating the conditions for everyone else to thrive. Now, John talked about all three of these aspects. He talked about clarifying direction by the way that he described a future that didn't even exist yet and invited team members, even very junior team members, to help craft that vision that would define where are we headed, clarify direction. Some people say it has to be a vision. I think depending on the level of leadership you are, sometimes it's just clear direction, and that is good enough. Key is everyone needs to be marching, as we like to say in the Silicon Valley area, marching roughly north on Highway 101, as opposed to taking all different highways in all different directions. The second thing that he talked about was how that vision helps to inspire team members and keeps people excited about the journey they're undertaking together. So that's engage others. And he talked about other ways to keep folks engaged, making sure that you're thinking about career development, being curious and open to learning from others. The key here is, one of the great things he suggested is, he used if-only conversations. If only we could, to keep that vision motivating and fresh across both the creative groups and the functional parts of his organizations. I especially love the way he also set crystal clear expectations about how he wanted team members to work. He wanted people to be collaborative and join together, not to toss things across the transom to each other and say, okay, I need you to do this for me, but rather to work together to say, what do we need to do to reach these goals? And that's one of the best ways to ensure operational efficiency, using that input from many different people to help you think through what should we be doing next. Not only are these key to any successful leader, but they're especially critical to leaders of transformational change. And John has certainly led many transformational changes across his career. So a couple of the other critical takeaways he suggested that you can emulate. Include people early. I love that he described it as in the first inning or when the clay is still wet. And you're doing that before everything is so defined that people's suggestions can't shift it. So you're building buy-in while you're also refining the vision. Second, find early wins and tell stories about them. And tell the same story to every group until everyone is bored silly and begs you to not tell the same story again. Why? Because we want people to have the same picture in their head about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how it's going to work, and most important, where it's already worked. That helps skeptics become more willing to lean into the changes you're bringing. The third is to embrace whatever resistance might come up. And rather than find it irritating, as we often do, Use it to learn what you might not be seeing from your perspective, as well as to anticipate implementation challenges that will need to be mitigated. So if you're ready to emulate John, here is a 15-minute task that you can do to get yourself started. 
schedule 15 minutes on your calendar at either the end of the week or the beginning. This 15 minutes is just for you so that you can ask yourself three questions related to what your organization needs right then. At that moment, do the people need more clarity or refreshed clarity? Or are they all still pretty focused on that flag at the front that we're all marching behind? The second is, are people engaged, excited, and focused enough on the end game? The third question, are there lingering barriers or blockages to delighting your customers, developing your employees, or generating returns that need to be removed and nobody's taking action on them? Based on the answer to these three questions, you can set your leadership priorities for the next window of time, providing just what your team needs from you to accelerate their progress. Clarity, engagement, and streamlined brilliant execution. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com, L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It, This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And here's my request. If you learned something useful today, please take a minute and leave a starred review telling folks what you learned. And then tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on To Lead is Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making Making It. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? 
Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.